0: if you would, and let's open them to the book of Ephesians, chapter one. And it seems strange after two years of preaching in the book of Acts that I would get up on Wednesday night and tell you to turn to the book of Ephesians. But I'm glad that we have the opportunity to start this study. I think it's a very important one. And I I really do hope that you enjoyed the study that we had in the book of Acts because we had an opportunity to really uh, look at that and, and get a good comprehensive look at uh, the Scriptures and Acts, and we learned a lot from that, I think. But that's the way I think we need to study the Bible. It's the very best way. Just take the Bible book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and sometimes we even have to go word by word to find out exactly what God wants us to know. Well, I think it's very interesting, as we open the book of Ephesians tonight, uh, if you were to read uh, commentators like I have on the book of Ephesians, then you would see that almost all of them start out with the same attitude and writing the same kinds of things in this regard is that they talk about the daunting task that lies before them to explain all of the doctrines that we find in Ephesians. Ephesians is a very powerful book. And this book, along with Romans, are two of the most important, theologically uh, uh, important books that we find in the New Testament or the entire Bible. And as I said, it is a powerful book. And there are foundational doctrines that are found here. All all Scripture is good doctrine. But this is really good for us because it's uh, it's the bedrock of New Testament theology. Romans gives us the relationship of man to God. And Paul in Romans begins to enlighten us towards God's eternal purpose for this world. And when we come to the book of Ephesians, uh, Paul starts to expand upon that. And he ties in God's eternal purpose with the church. Because the church is God's plan and purpose for this world. And so the church is integral. It's very important. It's, it can't be done without as far as New Testament Christianity is concerned. And I'm amazed that there are so many people who don't understand church doctrine. And they neglect church doctrine, because it is the most important thing that we have concerning God's plan and program and the New Testament era. In fact, in chapter three of the book of Ephesians, Paul talks about how he was the one who was chosen to reveal the mystery of the church. And God chose him to reveal certain truths that no one knew about before, things that were secret since the world began. And if you look at the Bible and you begin to think about biblical truth, God divides truth into three different areas. There's truth that is secret and never will be revealed, at least not in this life. We won't understand this until we come to the time we're in the presence of God. And then those things will be revealed to us. Then there's truth that God has revealed to specific people. Now, all of us... Uh, uh, all of us in the world, even lost people, have some revelation of God's truth. We can see that through nature. But God has chosen his people to reveal certain special truths. And if you are a child of God tonight, you understand things that the rest of the world does not understand. You see things that God has revealed to no one but to his children. And that includes the the, the relationship that God has to man and the nature of God. So those are fuller, deeper truths that God reveals only to his people. And then there is truth, another category truth that God has kept secret in the Old Testament, but then he has revealed it in the New Testament. These are truths that even the the most uh, devoted of Old Testament saints didn't know anything about. They weren't aware of. And one of those truths is the mystery of the church. And Paul was chosen to reveal that. And the Bible calls this the revelation of a mystery. So Ephesians was written to reveal to us the mystery of the church and how this all works within God's plan. So it's a very important book. It's paramount to our understanding of the deeper doctrines of the faith. Now, this evening, I just want to give you an introduction to the book. And we're going to talk about the first two verses in Ephesians chapter 1, which are the salutation. So if you'd stand, please, for the reading of God's word. Let's just look at these first two verses tonight. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you and peace from God, our father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to preach your word tonight. Lord, open this to us. Help us to understand it. May your Holy Spirit be here tonight and speak to us through your word. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In this study, I am much indebted to uh, commentators who have written upon the book of Ephesians. And when you begin to study this book, there is so much that has been written on it that it becomes very difficult to decide what would I like to talk about and what do I need to leave out? There's just so much here and I'm indebted to great old commentators like John Gill and Albert Barnes and Charles Hodge and many others who have written on this. And then also modern commentators are more modern, such as uh, Arthur Pink and and some of John MacArthur and, and especially D. Martin Lloyd Jones. And these are men who have, have written very valuable works on the book of Ephesians. I can't touch extensively on the thousands and thousands of pages that have been written But I do want to give you just a taste, just a little bit, of what God has for us to understand here. And I hope that you will begin to be enlightened and understand the truths that we find here in the book of Ephesians. Now, this evening, I would like to begin our study with the city of the church. Uh, I want to talk about the city, first of all, where uh, this church was located. And I'm sure that you recognize the city of Ephesus from our study in the book of Acts. And I'm sure that most of you are aware that this was one of the churches that was uh, in asia minor that jesus spoke to in the book of revelation ephesus was a magnificent city it was uh, one of the jewels of the ancient world and it was the most important city located in asia minor it was located on the sea coast and there were some 230 other cities that were also located along the sea coast of asia minor but uh, ephesus was really the queen of them all I mean, this was a a very cosmopolitan city. It was located on a strategic harbor. There was a main thoroughfare of the Roman Empire that went through the city of Ephesus. And so for its time, it was a very modern, affluent city. But all was not well in Ephesus. I mean, there was a lot of things that went on there. Uh, We're introduced to Ephesus uh, in the book of Acts in chapter 18 when Paul went to preach there. Later in chapter 19, Paul returned and he strengthened the believers that were in the city. Now, I'd like to point out to you tonight three particulars about the city of Ephesus at the time that Paul found it in the book of Acts. Now, first of all, in the city, there was a focus on idols. One of the major industries in Ephesus was the silver trade. There were many artisans that were in the city and the focus of their trade was making religious artifacts, making religious icons. And you may remember when I preached on this on the uproar in Ephesus when we were studying Acts that we discussed how the silversmiths in this city were making miniature statues of the goddess Diana and they were making miniatures of the temple that was located there. And the temple of Diana in Ephesus was one of the ancient wonders uh, or the wonders of the ancient world. And so these silversmiths had as their trade to make these images. It's just like if you go down to San Francisco today and you go to Fisherman's Wharf or uh, there at Pier 39 and you can buy these little trinkets. You can buy little miniatures of the Golden Gate Bridge or the Coit Tower or other sites that are in the city of San Francisco. And that's what these artisans were doing in Ephesus. The silversmiths, though, were actually making religious icons and people would buy these and they would worship these icons. Well, of course, when, when Paul came there with the gospel... The gospel naturally attacked that trade and Paul taught them that there was only one true living God, one true Jehovah God and all of these other gods that they worship had no power and they were a mere fantasy. Then secondly, in the city, there was also the fear of demons. Ephesus was a place that was evidently filled with the power of Satan. And so there were many people there who were possessed by demons. And when Paul came to the city and began to preach, uh, many of those demons were cast out. They had to leave. There's no room for the Holy Spirit and demons in a person. So Paul cast out demons and he healed diseases of people that were in the city. Well, you may remember there was a group of men who were in Ephesus and they saw what Paul was doing in casting out devils and they thought that they'd like to get in on some of Paul's action. They figured they could make some money out of this and so they said, we're going to try casting out devils too. And so they called on the name of Jesus, someone they didn't even know and had no relationship with and they tried to cast out devils. Do you remember the story how one of those demons came out of someone and leaped on them? And the Bible tells it, I'll put it in my French, beat the snot out of them. It just beat the snot out of those guys. And the Bible says that fear fell on them all. Now, that leads me to the third observation, and that is the flow of the gospel. Because the gospel was mightily preached in Ephesus. When people saw what Paul was able to do, when they saw that demons were cast out and diseases were healed, then people began to come to Paul in droves. Many people were saved. And so they brought all of their books of sorceries. They brought all of their books of magic and their Ouija boards and their tarot cards and all of that devilish stuff. And the Bible says that they burned them. And there were so many people saved in Ephesus that the Bible says the word of God grew and prevailed. So many people got saved that it upset the economy of the entire city. The leaders, silversmiths in Ephesus were angry because Paul was preaching, and when people got saved, it influenced their trade. It started to get into their pocketbooks. And not only theirs, but the Bible also says that in all the regions roundabout, they were also influenced by Paul's preaching, and so that nearly ruined the trade of the silversmiths. Well, in the, in the process of all of this being done, there were many good believers. There were many sound church members that were made, and Ephesus became a good doctrinal church. Now, that leads me to our second observation tonight, which is the calling of the church. Now, if we go back to the book of Acts and we look at Paul's first visit to Ephesus in chapter 18, Paul spent just a short time in the city. He was on his way down to Jerusalem, so he stopped in Ephesus for just a little while. He preached in the synagogue, and then he had to continue his journey to go on down to Jerusalem. But Paul said that he would return later. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us that there were any converts made on that first trip, there could have been, but it doesn't say that there were any. But in the 19th chapter, Paul returned to Ephesus and he stayed in Ephesus uh, the second longest time that he spent anywhere. He spent two years preaching to the people in Ephesus. He instructed disciples in the word of God. Now, we also find in that 19th chapter of the book of Acts that Paul met 12 men in the city of Ephesus. And these were men who were uh, they were saved men, but they hadn't yet been fully instructed in the word of God. They were disciples of a man by the name of Apollos. And Apollos, even though he was a great orator, he was a good preacher, yet he still had imperfect knowledge of the way of Christ. Everything hadn't been explained to him. And so these 12 disciples that Paul found in Ephesus had been baptized, evidently by someone who had been baptized by John the Baptist. Now, I I went through a whole long explanation of all of that when we studied the 19th chapter. And uh, quite frankly, I do not believe that anyone... Uh, John the Baptist ever gave anyone the authority to baptize. John the Baptist himself was called by the Lord to baptize. But the Bible does not tell us that any of his disciples could baptize. Now, when they became disciples of Jesus, Jesus gave them the authority to baptize as they became part of the church. So evidently, these disciples in Ephesus had been baptized by John the Baptist. and, And so they had not yet learned that Christ had actually come. So they must have been baptized in the time prior to John declaring that Jesus was the Lamb of God. So these men uh, were baptized by John the Baptist, but they didn't know that Jesus had actually come and they hadn't heard anything about the Holy Spirit. So what Paul did was to take those 12 men and to baptize them. So that shows us first here under, under this heading that the church there was established by Paul the Apostle. Paul was the one who baptized them. And these 12 men became the root or the founders, uh, the, the founding members of the church at Ephesus. Now, in the first verse of Ephesus, the book starts out with Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones had an interesting comment on the salutation of of the Ephesians. And he said, we're too often tempted to overlook the beginning of these books that Paul writes. We're in such a hurry to get on to the rest of the truths that we overlook the salutation. And in the salutation, there are some very important things that are spoken. And certainly if we look at this, just the first phrase here, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, there's great truth in that statement. Paul was a messenger of the, of the greatest person who ever lived. And he preached the greatest message that could ever be preached. He was an apostle. And that word means a messenger. He was one who was sent. And he was sent directly by Jesus. Paul said in 1 Corinthians that he was one who was born out of due time. And in the book of Galatians, he said that he was separated from his mother's womb. And there, there's an ocean of depth. In those two statements of Paul, you see, when Paul was saved on the road to Damascus, he was conquered by Jesus. He was saved. And Paul knew that that was God's eternal purpose for his life before he was ever born. He believed that he was chosen by God for the work that he was called to do. And I think that that's why Paul regularly talked about and preached about the sovereignty of God in salvation. His writings are permeated with it. And right here in this first chapter of Ephesians, we're going to see that a little bit later, how Paul talks about the purpose and the sovereignty of God. Now, I'd also like to point out to you while we're talking about this, that as this church was established, uh, Paul baptized these 12 men, and baptism is a prerequisite to church membership. You see, you can't have proper churches without proper baptism. You can't have proper churches without proper authority. And Paul was authorized by the church in Antioch actually to be a missionary and to start this church in Ephesus. We go back to chapter 13, the book of Acts, and it tells us about Paul's authority. And so the proper way to start churches is through the authority that God has given through already established churches. Now, I think that's very important for us to understand because that means that you as an individual, you have no authority to go out and start churches. You can't just decide one day that you want to start a church. People must have the proper authority. And there are there are churches that are cropping up all over the place on street corners and 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 many different places. And folks, quite frankly, I wonder who is it that gave them the authority to start a church? When a missionary calls us, I always ask him a question. What church are you from? Uh, By whose authority do you go out as a missionary? And if they have no authority, if they say, well, I don't have New Testament Baptist authority, church authority, then I tell them that you don't have the right to go out as a missionary. You don't have the right to start churches. And, folks, I even believe this, that unless a person has the authority of the church, he doesn't have the right even to go out and preach. God is the one who calls people through his church to do the work that he wants to do. And do you know why that's necessary? Why why it has to be that way? Because the Bible says that the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. The church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. And so that means that there is no individual who can be the pillar and the ground of the truth. One time we had a young man who came here to church and he came to ask me if we would support him as a missionary. He felt that he had been called by God to be a missionary. And so I asked him, I said, well, what church are you a member of? And he said, oh, I'm not a member of a church. And I said to him, then you don't have the authority to be a missionary. The first thing that you need to do, you need to get associated with the Lord's church. You have to be a part of that. That's God's program for the world. And the church is the only one that has the authority to give anyone the right to baptize, start churches or to evangelize. You see, part of the mystery of the church is to understand the proper organization of churches. And the reason that we have so many fly by night churches out here is that people have gone out and started churches without any authority and they're preaching without any authority. Now, that brings me to the next statement, because the church at Ephesus was established by God, the authority. Now, let's look at the next part of Paul's statement in verse number one, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. So who is it that gave Paul the authority to write to this church? It was by the will of God who gave him the authority as an apostle. It was God who gave him the authority to start a church. It was by the will of God and and God's will. that, That is another prevalent theme that we see in Paul's writings. And friends, Paul never did anything unless he had a directive from God. And don't you know this? That is the crux of our ministry today. There is too much going on in churches today that is not part of the will of God. When I see churches that stop preaching on sin and hell, then I know that that is not in the will of God. And when I see preachers who begin to stand up and and preach about current events and they take their messages from newspapers and magazines and television shows, I know that's not in the will of God. And when I see pastors who lay down the good old King James Version and start to preach out of these heretical translations, I know that's not the will of God. And when I see churches that abandon historic Baptist positions that were laid down by the apostles and to substitute for them the philosophies of men, I know that's not in the will of God. And when I see churches and pastors that get away from historical Baptist positions on the sovereignty of God and begin to replace that with man-centered theology, then I know that's not in the will of God. And then when I see churches who abandon separation both personally and ecclesiastically, then I know that's not in the will of God. Who's our authority? God's our authority. And if you have any other authority, you have no business calling yourself a preacher or a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's apostleship and his right to start churches was by the power and the authority of God. But but don't mistake this. This power and authority was given to him through the right channels. Now, what I mean by that is don't say that God called me to do anything without coming through God's methods. And as soon as you step outside of God's channels, you can't be in the will of God. Now, God's plan and program for the world are the church. And so when you sidestep the church for authority, you are out of the will of God. Now, let's go on to the third observation tonight, and that's the congregation of the church. One of the most Uh, diabolical teachings that the devil ever put into the heart of man was the distortion of what constitutes a church. Now, some people think that the church is an ethereal, uh, otherworldly, invisible monstrosity that's composed of everybody in the world who is saved. That's not a church. And the evidence that it's not a church is right here in this scripture. Churches are made up of congregations of baptized believers. They meet, you can see them, You can touch them, they're organized, and they work together to carry out the Lord's work in this world. The church is not invisible. Invisible churches can't meet. They can't baptize. They can't take the Lord's Supper. They can't preach. They can't fellowship. They can't grow and mature. You see, the church is a local body. And when Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, he was writing to a local church. Now, we notice he says that they were saints in verse one. He calls them saints at Ephesus. So this is a local church. Now, let's notice that designation for just a moment. The designation as believers. Designation as believers, because Paul says here to the saints which are at Ephesus. One commentator said that the church of Rome looks for its saints among the dead. But the apostle Paul looked for saints among the living. And that's true, folks. If you're saved, you are a saint. Now, you don't have to wait till you die to become a saint. And you don't have to wait until somebody holds a special ceremony over your bones or verifies that you have performed some kind of a miracle in order to be a saint. You are a saint if you're saved. And the only miracle that you need is to be born of God the miraculous new birth, trusting in Jesus, the transformation of your unworthy soul from a hell-bound sinner to a heaven-bound Christian. That's all you need to do to be a saint. As I look over this congregation tonight, I see saints. St. Letha's right there, and St. Mac, and St. Lorraine, St. Hazel, and Claude, and all of you that are saved, you're saints of God. But I also want to point out to you that there are Many people who are called saints who don't act like saints. Have you ever heard a Christian say this? Well, I'm a Christian, but I'm no saint. I'm no goody two shoes. I'm no saint. Why not? When you're called a saint and the world... What do they think of when they think of a saint? They have a picture of somebody who's totally dedicated to God, somebody who loves his brother, someone who's kind and meek and gentle and reverend, someone who's polite and self-sacrificing and courteous. And so if you're not a saint, why aren't you a saint? Maybe you didn't know this, but the word saint comes from the same Greek word that we get holy, the word hagios. It means holy. And that's the same thing that we have saint. And God said, be ye holy, for I am holy. So be a saint. Be holy. If you have a designation as a believer, you're a saint. And so you're to be holy. Any, Any other way that you live your life is a betrayal to the calling that God has given you. So what you ought not to do is take your body and use it in any other way that could be called less than sainthood. Because that's what you are. You're a saint of God. So the question for all of us is, are we separated from the world and are we different from the world? Because that's what sainthood is. Now, also, let me point this out to you before I leave this particular area that uh, these people that were called saints, these people in Ephesus, they they weren't a group of super theologically trained seminary students. They weren't doctors of theology. They're just simply born again believers. So Paul doesn't start out this letter, write it to him and say, I'm going to tell you something right now. I'll blow your socks off. I and mean, I'm going to tell you something you can't possibly understand. This is difficult. And uh, when, when I get done with you, your head will swim because I'm going to tell you some deep stuff. Paul didn't say that at all. No, he was just talking to ordinary Christians. And he expected that when he wrote the book of Ephesians, that they would understand what he was talking about. Now, some Christians will say, Preacher, you're preaching over my head. Why do you preach like that? I can't understand what you're talking about. Why can't you understand it? Paul wrote to these Christians with truths that he thought were very understandable. They're just ordinary Christians. But you know that people have taken the next verses that we'll study here in this first chapter, and they have gone through all kinds of contortions and twisting it to try to make it say something that it does not say. Something uh, so simple and so plain as Paul writes it here. And yet they've tried to destroy the meaning of it. Now, we ought to understand this. If we're students of the word of God, we ought to understand it because we ought to take God at his word. Now, some of these people who don't understand it, they'll call us pseudo intellectuals. And they'll say because they don't understand it, that you can't understand it. And they'll criticize you for this. Friends, let me tell you something. Everything that you read in the Bible was written for people just like you. They were written so you could understand it. And with a little diligence on your part, and with a whole lot of Holy Spirit guidance, what you should understand, you will understand. These people at Ephesus, they understood what Paul was talking about. Paul said in verse number one, they were faithful. These are faithful Christians. What are they faithful to? Well, they're faithful to the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're faithful to his incarnation. They're faithful to his virgin birth. They're faithful to the inerrancy of his word. They're faithful to the substitutionary atonement. They're faithful to the resurrection the, from the dead. They're faithful to the second coming of Christ. They're saints. They're faithful. They're students of the God, word of God. And so they understood this. So Paul wrote to these believers at Ephesus. Truth And he's writing the same truth to the members of Berean Baptist Church. Now, we notice, secondly, the directive to the believers. He says in verse number two, grace be to you and peace from God, our father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't think the salutation is profound? I mean, how many sermons could be preached from just those two themes, grace and peace? Paul is the apostle of grace. He talks about living in grace and abiding in grace, working in grace and resting in grace, saved by grace and sustained by grace. Paul has a lot to say about grace. A common greeting among those people back in those days was grace to you or God's unmerited favor be on you. Now, sometimes men show grace. I mean, whenever we do something for someone and we don't ask for anything in return, that's grace. But there's nobody who's ever shown grace like God has shown grace. And that's when he gave his only begotten son for us. He gave his perfect son who became grace. And God said, you can't do anything for that in return. The apostle John wrote, and of his fullness have we received and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Then he also directs them with peace. He says grace be to you and peace and peace is another form of greeting. Peace is a much misunderstood word. Uh, It really has a much deeper meaning than we usually attach to it. When the world thinks of peace, what do we think of? Well, we think of cessation from war. We think about not being at war with one another It means to stop fighting or to stop striving with one another. So two nations who Maybe at war they will declare peace and they retract within their borders and they stop fighting one another. But the definition of peace in the Bible is much deeper than that because it means not only to stop fighting, it means to be reconciled. It means to be in union one with another. And maybe the reason that the world doesn't have any peace is because we don't really understand what peace is all about. You see, it's more than to stop fighting and to do your own thing. It means to come together and to be one with another. And that's the kind of peace that God gives. Now, what stops us from having peace? Often things like our common prejudices keep us from having peace. Uh, You know, I would say technically we are at peace with the French, but I have no desire at all to be one with the French. I could tell you that right now. See, when God speaks of peace, he talks about complete reconciliation We're enemies of God. We had fought against God. But the Bible says in Romans chapter 5, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It says in Colossians chapter 1, And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. So you're reconciled to God. You have peace with God. You're at one with him. And God's at one with you. Why do we need grace and peace? Well, because not only is man at war with God, but he's at war with himself. I want you to listen to what Dr. Lloyd-Jones said. He said, man was made by God in such a way that he can only be at peace within himself when he is at peace with God. Man was never meant to be a God, but he is forever trying to deify himself. He sets up his own desires as the rules and laws of his life. Yet he is ever characterized by confusion and worse. Something in himself denies his claims. And so he is always quarreling and fighting within himself. He knows nothing of real peace. He has no peace with God. He has no peace within himself. And still worse, because of all this, he is in a state of warfare with everyone else. Unfortunately for him, everyone else wants to be God as well. And that's the problem, folks. Why do we need peace? It's because we're all self-centered. It's because all of us are egocentric. We have an egocentric mindset. We never look at anyone else and count them higher than we do ourselves. And so we're always going to be angry at one another. We'll always be mad at one another. There will always be trouble in the church until we get peace with God, until we get peace with one another and peace within ourselves. So when a person really has grace and peace, he can do what Paul said later in the book of Philippians. He said, let nothing Be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Well, let's finish the lesson tonight with this third piece of information about this congregation at Ephesus, because thirdly, I want to talk to you about the decline of the believers. Now, as I told you earlier, Paul wrote these words to ordinary Christians and their ability to receive the truths that Paul spoke about is a real testimony to the richness of their faith. They were diligent about what they believed. They were doctrinally strong. But then something happened to this church. Now, they didn't remain faithful. They didn't stay faithful to what they'd been taught. I want you to turn, if you would, now to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. And I want us to read about this church at Ephesus and how it faltered, how it failed. Revelation, chapter 2. Now, remember, Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians about 60 to 63 A.D., and the book of Revelation was written about 30 years later. So this is the message that comes to them about 30 years after the church had been established. Look at Revelation 2, beginning in verse number 1. Unto the angel, that's the pastor, remember, unto the pastor of the church of Ephesus, write, These things saith he which holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, <clears throat> How thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and has found them liars, and hast borne and has patience for my name's sake, has labored and has not fainted. Now look at verse number four. Nevertheless I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works or else I will come to thee quickly and will remove the candlestick out of thy place, except thou repent. This was a good, strong doctrinal church. Again, that's evidenced by how they received what Paul wrote. It was readily received. But here we find in verse number 4 of Revelation chapter 2 that it says they have left their first love. So here is a doctrinally straight church. They were defenders of the faith. They stood strong against the onslaught of all this error that was being taught at the end of the first century. They were strong against that. But while they were being strong, they forgot all about the central figure of who they were to be talking about and preaching about and promoting. They were strong doctrinally, but they forgot the one who put them in the place where they could be strong doctrinally. Now, their job was to preach this central figure, and that was to preach Jesus so I suppose that what happened to the church at Ephesus was they stopped evangelizing. Probably they retreated into this doctrinal cocoon that they had. Do you know there are many churches like that? There is an association of Baptists in our country today and I'm not going to mention their name, but they are so withdrawn and so protective of what they think is the truth that they're no longer evangelistic. They're so afraid that their churches and their doctrine is going to be tainted that they stop telling anybody. They've stopped talking to people out in the world. So they've got to protect their doctrine and keep it within. And folks in the process, their churches are dying because they don't reach out to anyone. You can't be a true church of the Lord Jesus Christ and neglect the commission that Christ gave the church. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. And so a church can be as doctrinally correct as it can possibly be on all other things. But if they don't have that, they won't be a true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, finally, the church at Ephesus died out somewhere. They lost their first love and that church didn't survive. Let me give you one more quote from Dr. Lloyd-Jones. This is your last statement or listening sheet tonight. Anything which claims to be Christianity without having Christ at the beginning, at the center and at the end is a denial of Christianity. Call it what you will. Folks, I believe what we have done in this church is to labor, to correct our doctrine. I believe we're on the right course, but I don't believe that we ought to let our doctrine freeze us in our tracks. I'm firmly committed to historic Baptist principles. I preach those. I believe them. I believe what our Baptist forefathers stood for, and I will stand by what I believe. But as I say that, I also know this, that the father of modern missions... William Carey, and you probably recognize that name, and I'll mention him a couple of times throughout our study. But the father of modern missions, William Carey, preached exactly the same things that I preach from this pulpit. He believed exactly what I've been preaching to you for the past three years, and he was a missionary minded person. The foundation for reaching people for Christ is the very doctrines that we preach, it's the basis for what we preached, it's the impetus. It's the thing that gets us going and what we do. But folks, let me tell you this. Let's let those things be the anchor that hold us. But let's don't let it be the thing that impedes us. And we have to drag it around with us wherever we go. We stand strong on the doctrine of God's word, just like it was delivered to us by the apostles. And we also do exactly what God told us to do. And that's to reach the world for Jesus Christ. So the book of Ephesians, this is a marvelous book. There's a lot of truth here. And I say to you, just like Paul, grace and peace be to you from God, the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord. we thank you for what we learned from the book of Ephesians. We thank you, Lord, for the great truths that are presented here. Help us, Lord, that we might see these in the light that we should help us to understand them by the power of your Holy Spirit that lives in us. Lord, we just ask you that we might be receptive and easily receptive of the truth just like these disciples were at Ephesus. Bless this invitation tonight, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please stand as we sing.